Hey, what's going on, Retick Loungers? Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the Retick Lounge. I'm Lucas, your co-host, joined by Nathan Katz, your co-host as well. Uh, today, we're going to be getting into an episode about is breeding right for you? So we're going to be talking about just general breeding information. What's really cool um, about what we're going to be offering is we're actually going to be providing some inside information on what, what breeding's like for new keepers and new breeders. Uh, there's not a lot of information out there, so make sure you, that you guys listen to this podcast. Um, and then we're going to be talking about the, the good and the bads of breeding and so that you guys can, by the end of this episode, decide if breeding is really going to be the right thing for you. Catch us every Friday here at the Retick Lounge. We're going to be uploading our episodes um, on YouTube if you want to join us and watch our videos. If you guys just want to listen while you're cleaning enclosures, anything like that, go ahead and just subscribe on Apple Music, iHeart, or Spotify. We should be available on all those platforms. Uh, and, and please don't forget, if you guys are interested in being part of this amazing community where we can grow as new keepers, new breeders together and advance this community in a supportive, amazing way, go ahead and join our Patreon, The Retic Lounge. We have a bunch of different tiers that you can subscribe to on you know as as little as five dollars a month and um even the advanced stuff and getting into higher levels you can get the ability to get discounts at our animals and get memorabilia uh and what i mean by memorabilia is just you know t-shirts things like that to talk about the retic lounge um so we look forward to seeing you on our patreon as well uh make sure you're supporting us arc really important right now with everything that's happening across the u.s and especially in florida so sign up for their youtube their instagram those are both free as well as their newsletter and then spare the five ten dollars a year it takes to become a member as well as make donations when possible so support us arc all right stay tuned listen to this awesome episode of what it takes to be a breeder and if breeding is right for you thanks so much guys hope you guys enjoy Let's talk about this. Um, so, is breeding right for our listeners? Um, I guess let's let's just open a discussion about uh, breeding in general. So, I guess just generally speaking, Nathan, what was your first experience like breeding? Uh, a nightmare. <laughs> uh, it was awful. I'm so uh-huh. glad you said that. Well, I mean, I didn't have the typical first experience. I, I got a mail sent to me last minute saying, hey, do you want to breed breed these two animals together? And uh, I was also going through the worst back pain in my life leading up to my back surgery, not able to do much with my snakes. So, yeah, it was a, it was a trial. It was, it was something I had to decide how bad I wanted. So I, I apparently pretty bad. <laughs> um, 
So you got the opportunity to produce a phenomenal clutch that, I mean, just speaking to the quality of your, your animals that you produce, you were able to, to send those animals over to Garrett. I reach out reptiles to sell. Talk about like the pairing, how that was like. Yeah. So, uh, originally I was contacted by Joe Hull. Uh, he's a reach out reptiles employee now. Uh, but at the time he was stationed over in Korea working with our armed forces. Uh, he had a pretty substantial collection that he had built up through Garrett and a few other sources and had a, let's see, he was a 25% Kalatoa, 25% Jampea, Golden Child, Annery, Sunfire, Tiger. And then we thought he was possibly het for albino. That didn't prove out. And I feel like I'm forgetting a gene, but if it comes up, it comes up. Uh, <laughs> and then threw him over to my 75% Kalatoa, 12.5% Jampea. Uh, she is a purple albino, and she proved out het for Annery with him. So that that was really nice. Cool. What, yeah. what were the breeding ages of, uh, well, breeding ages, but what were the ages of those animals that you paired together because there's a lot of talk about breeding retics and um there's a really big discrepancy in terms of like the breeding age of like a mainland retic versus the breeding age of super dwarf and dwarf crosses and so on and so forth like you know people people say that mainland males can breed as early as 10 11 months old and have good clutches um and and really a, a male super dwarf at 10 months old is literally still like that big <laughs> so uh, yeah what ages? i mean yeah that i i don't have enough experience to say for sure uh i can tell you my my brief experiences so my first pairing uh that went remarkably well given my circumstances at the time uh you know the female was about four and a half years old. She had great size on her, great tone on her. You could tell she was, you know, about full grown. She was just putting on muscle at that point. She wasn't just, she wasn't too lean. She wasn't too fat. She just looked really good and just fed her really hard that year and showed all the signs of wanting to go. Um, and I believe the male was also around three or four, uh, Joe Hole would have to correct me on that, but because uh, that was his animal. But I, I do okay. believe he was around th- at least three when we paired. Yeah, my my. As a matter of fact, so like my very first retake that I ever got uh, was my Kaiwati, and she is currently now going through the repetition, has had locks, and and what I believe I think she's she's gravid or has ovulated, and she. Uh, turned four in February. So she is roughly about four and a half years old by the time that she, uh, by the time that she lays and has her first clutch, she'll be four and a half years old. So uh, generally speaking, just like to the breeders that I've talked to, I mean, Garrett and, and a bunch of other Eric Lee and other, uh, you know, big time uh, reputable superdorf breeders. It seems like four years old is about the age to kind of expect a female. Now it can happen earlier. Um, you know, uh, Doc Murdoch 
what was was able to push and and breed his coyote females to two and a half years old he was having clutches wow. uh which is super young right um you know, just goes to show what, what feeding and size really does. And at the end of the day, if a female has the resources they feel they need to breathe, there's a good chance that they might. Um, and so, so yeah. Now, I what mean, do you say on males? On males? Um, so. What have you been told? That kind of thing. Because my experience, because the year following my successful breeding, I tried to pair that same female she showed all the signs of ovulating. She went off food, everything. And I took a chance on a somewhat younger male. Um, I believe he was around 16 to 18 months when I started pairing them. And, you know, no problems between the two, but there was absolutely no interest as well. Now, yeah. I can tell just in the year that has passed between now and or since then, and he's become a totally different animal. I haven't seen a March yet, but you can just tell he's tuned in a little bit more now. Yeah. I think that, so I think there's really two factors when it comes to, uh, when males and females are ready. I think number one age, obviously, but I think size is important too, because, um, I, I think generally speaking, you can get a male, and from what I've heard and what I've talked to breeders about, you can get a male to breed at around 18 months old. But if you have a very small bloodline of a smaller, medium, quote-unquote, super dwarf, dwarf locality animal, um, and that male is only four feet long, I don't think it's going to be successful. So I think that the right age for a super dwarf male is going to be in between the ages of 18 months to two years old and a minimum of five to five and a half feet. He was, he was about five when I threw him in. I was really impressed with his size, even though uh, Garrett was talking about his bloodline being pretty small. He, for, for 16 months, he, he was pretty much at the same size he is now. I mean, he's maybe a tiny bit girthier, but he's not a whole whole lot longer yeah yeah and so um you know as they mature more i i would assume that they start to figure out what they're doing but yeah i mean it, for me to feel confident that a male is going to get the job done is probably two years old yeah i think me too at, at least two years old i would yeah if you want to be safe go through yeah Maylands are a different story. I recently have acquired, I bought an ocelot male from Aubrey Pruitt and I, I talk in depth uh, and have exchanged a lot of conversations with Aubrey. And Looks like you're um, wearing Aub that shirt right now. Yeah. Shout out to AMB Exotics. Um, he's a great so, guy. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. Um, he's gotten some of his ocelot animals in Maylands to breed uh, males at 11 months old. And, and what's crazy is that I asked him, I said, do you power feed them? What do you do? And, and he actually, um, you know, I'm going to backtrack a bit. Don't want to give any, any of his, his breeding tips without his permission. But at the end of the day, um, he said, even when those males do mature and they get to breeding size and they're, they're two, three, four years old, they're still nine to 10 foot animals that are a manageable size mainland, but he's mm -hmm. able to turn around and get them to breed, you know, successfully under a year old for some of those those males. So, again, depending on the localities that you're working with, 
whether it's mainland, dwarf or super dwarf localities, small, medium, large, whatever you want to call them, um, the age and the size is going to vary drastically. And, and I think that that information that I gathered from Aubrey about getting males to breed that young is why I also feel like size also plays a very relevant factor and not just age. Yeah, and I'm I'm such a baby when it comes to breeding anything. I mean, yeah, I I'm a total rookie, so I'm I'm learning as I go, and these are all you know assumptions and things that I've been told. Uh, males, I've been told two years. Uh, you sometimes you'll see the super dwarf localities that I'm working with. Uh, the males push a little younger than that. Like I said, 18 months you'll see sometimes, but you know. Uh, doesn't ever hurt to be patient and just raise your animals and enjoy the process and not have to put so much pressure on it. Yeah. I think a lot of people, they get into this with the mindset of I've never owned a retake and I'm going to breed them. And then what mm -hmm. they try and do is they have expectations that, okay, my female will breed at three and a half, four years old and my male will breed at 18 months old. And so I'm going to do all the calculations and everything that I need to. And people don't really understand that at the end of the day, these are animals and really, when they decide to breed, is so out of our control. <laughs> yeah, can't force nature. I mean, you can you can play around knowing what you know, but that's all you can do. So do we've talked about keep these animals right. Yeah, hundred percent. We've talked about male size and age. What about your females? So females, uh, I wouldn't even attempt until after four. I just, you know, really want to make sure that they have the proper size on them. I have a, a female that's staying super, super small. She's at four years old. I could really try to push her and breed her this year. And, you know, with my space and my capabilities, I think I'd rather go with my females who are a bit more established and just see how that female raises up another year. I don't care if she breeds it until five, six, seven. I just want to make sure that she gets a healthy clutch out and doesn't, you know, doesn't have anything that's going to be detrimental to her. Yeah. So, so slow and steady is what I'm hearing. Yeah. I always want to be safe with my animals. I've seen people try to push their animals that are smaller or, you know, maybe don't have the muscle tone or just the body composition to health, uh, produce a healthy clutch. You know, I, I just, I'd rather have a repeat of what I did the first time. I had 19 healthy eggs. I was able to incubate them all to completion. Like, you know, I'm sure I'm going to have hiccups here and there, but I'd like to do my best to, you know, avoid those. Yeah, 100%. And hiccups are going to end up happening just like like you you had that that your second year of having a young male and you know your females was showing all the right signs but you know the male just wasn't ready and it didn't end up happening and um but but yeah i mean at the but end i also of the day, learned a lot about that because i was able to successfully get my females to cycle luckily they didn't throw any slugs or anything like that uh the one female that cycled absorbed so I, I was able to learn something from it even though i wasn't able to you know, produce any animals. That's, I, I think maybe point. even more valuable. Such a good point. It's always a learning process. And, um, it's always great to be able to have mentors and to have people that can provide you with information. But at the end of the day, the most important factor of, of being a breeder and wanting to breed animals is to learn 
the information and, and kind of just learn from your own experiences and your own mistakes. Um, you know, I made mistakes my first year breeding that, that caused, um, that, that I believe could have potentially caused the outcome that it did. And, and there could have been some ex- external variables that, that impacted that. But, but yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Um, and yeah, I think four years old for the dwarf and super dwarf localities and crosses is a, is a good, um, is a good mark and a good feature to, to aim for. Um, you know, my Kaiwadi, um, she had some pushing issues early in her life, me being new at keeping retics. And, um, so I, I got information to try and feed her more. And so I got her to a decent size to where I thought maybe I could try to push her at three and a half years old. And she told me in my learning experience, just like you had a learning experience was that she wasn't ready. And so now that she's four and a half and she's cycling and she, she's, you know, has, has, um, gone through the motions and more than likely this is going to work out this year. Um, it, it, it's, it paid off for that, that, um, you know, if I could go back in time, I would have just waited, right? She, she showed me that she wasn't ready. And, um, I, I knew going into it at three and a half would have been early. Um, and, and now she, here she is at four and a half going through those motions. I mean, you can, you can try to power feed right before a cycle, but if that animal's not well established right before that, you're not going to make up that calorie deficit that that animal needs throughout the process. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm a big believer that, that if your female doesn't have the size, especially a first time breeder doesn't have the size, um, and she doesn't have the caloric capacity to cycle. She's not going to, um, they, they are, we, we as humans, you know, one, one of my mentors always told me this, we as humans think we know better than our animals. And we don't, they, they really do know what's best for them. And so at the end of the day, our job is to provide them with uh, a healthy diet, proper feeding and allow them to do their work. Um, so I think goes back to just our husbandry episodes, providing an enriching life. So this animal's not just an asset to you. It's not just something sitting in a cage that you're, hoping to profit off of one day i mean you got to spend time with these animals you got to be able to trust these animals and able in order to you know work with them safely and work with them in a rewarding fashion yeah and if you work with them in that fashion man that's such a good point words of wisdom from nathan katz here you go i don't i mean (laughs) sure so so I, I, I think that, no, I mean, it's so true because I think when people get into this just for the money aspect is they try to force things to happen. And that's when disappointment, anxiety, frustration set in. And, and that's just a recipe for disaster for breeders. I mean, do you really want to, I mean, I'm assuming you want to breed these animals because you love them, not just because you want to make a pretty penny because there's a market for them. And if that's the case, just do things in a patient perspective and, and that, that does your animal, um, uh, due diligence and that you're doing right by them because sure you could probably get a, a super dwarf dwarf cross, um, 
to breed at three or three and a half years old or even two and a half years old like Dun Munson, but you you are going to be power feeding, getting that animal extremely big in a short period of time. And is that really in the best interest of your animal? Well, I mean, and there's there's other routes too. I mean, there you see people that are throwing huge investment uh, type money into their breeding programs and you can you can get something going within the first year but i think just like i said going back to those earlier episodes just i just don't see the reward in that for me uh the reward in it for me is growing with the animals learning about them learning each individual just trying to do it as best i can instead of just trying to go straight in and start making a mill of it yeah 100 percent. so now that we've talked about breeding age and sizes um let's talk about the um the the unspeakable i almost i almost did like think about it as like he who should not be named lord voltimult type of thing like people I don't think like I know to where talk you're about going. <laughs> People don't like to talk about how they get their breeders to cycle and like the inside scoop of like how to talk about um, how to breed their animals. And I'm a, I'm an open book. I'm transparent. I feel like people should know how to do this and know the inside scoop on how to. So do you want to give some insight on that? Is that what you were thinking about, by the way? Uh, yeah, that is definitely where I was going. <laughs> uh, I mean, I feel like I have an okay idea. I don't think I'm 100% on it. I don't think it's an exact science. I think that's part of the mystery that comes with uh, how we get our females to cycle and why it seems like it's uh, unattainable information. But yeah, let's let's dive in. All right. Some people might not like us for this, for giving all of you new people on how to breed your retics, but here we go. Um, so I, I guess I'll start this one. Um, on, on how I get my females to cycle and how to breed. Um, so what I have followed is with mature females, it's just kind of a, a generic feeding every other week, every two weeks. And, and I even like to provide like a bigger meal every three weeks, um, on so often I'm not set on like providing a same size meal on a consistent basis. Remember that that feeding your animals is not a cookie cutter thing. I like to provide my animals with smaller meals, larger meals, so forth. Um, but what I like to do is, um, and I was given this advice um, by a well-known breeder. Um, and, and again, I'm not going to drop names just because I, I, I don't want people to, to, to know like who provided me when this info without having that person's permission to put his name out there or her name out there. But um, what worked for me really, really well in my successful clutch um, that, that hatched out of February in 2022 was um, giving them a diet of every two to three weeks and then two months prior to the time that I want to try and cycle. So when I tried to cycle my animals is based off of my environment here in San Antonio, Texas. It's going to be different for for people up north, further south, out west, in Utah. In Utah, it's going to be different everywhere, but you have to understand that a large portion of retic breeding is 
environmental. Absolutely. Which means barometric pressure drops, which is the stormy wet season in Indonesia. Um, what's cool is I have sensor push um, little sensors that measure the humidity, the temperature, and the barometric pressure in my snake room which is great for me to be able to see. I love to see the barometric pressures fluctuate. So number one, in, in Texas for me, that's in the fall time. That's when we start to get hit really hard with with storms and it starts storming and the temperature starts to drop. So a couple months before that begins, that, be, that starts to begin around September. So a couple months before that begins, I was advised to give my snakes, give my females a feeding drought. And what that means is giving them one moderate sized meal that's only going to leave a little slight lump, giving them one of those meals a month for two months. And then after that, allowing the temperature drop and the barometric pressure changes as well as every seven to day seven to ten day feedings of larger meals larger meals meaning a meal that's big enough to leave a lump in your animal that you look and you can noticeably see a big lump and when i did that my year of breeding it only took six feedings for my female to go completely cold turkey off of food it took six to seven weeks, six total feedings for that to happen. And once she was off of food, I introduced the male. And the reason why I introduced the male once she was off of food is because I noticed during that drought of not feeding her often, her feeding response was super intense. And I did not feel safe putting a male in. Now the year before, I didn't do that and I could put the male in and it still was okay because I wasn't giving her that drought but what I learned from this year, this past year of breeding is giving them that drought and then feeding them frequently after lets them know in their mind that there's a surplus of food available and they're ready to take all those calories in to get ready to build follicles and breed. And that worked phenomenally. So if you are listening to this and you know you know who you are who told me this, I can't thank you enough for that tip because it even worked for my Kayuati this year and I can't thank you enough for that. Hey, it, it worked for me. I did a similar regimen. I wouldn't say I followed that to an exact T my first year, but it was very, very similar in terms of uh, a little bit of a famine period going into uh, a little bit more of a surplus heavier food items and then you know as soon as i started doing that consistently what do you know off food ready to have that meal yeah and you know i was already starting to introduce just to like get sense going and stuff like that just when it was safe i had no no negative responses so you know i just played it by ear and i feel like that could have i don't know what your uh opinions on this are but i feel like as you're feeding heavy, throwing that male in every once in a while to just get the hormones going doesn't hurt. No, I actually did that with my Kayuati this year. I didn't wait until she was fully off of food um, because she wasn't displaying signs of like this severe, crazy uh, 
uh, food response. But what I make sure to do in order to make sure that it's safe is that I take the female out of her enclosure. I handle her. I will make sure that she is fully, fully aware that she's not being fed. And I put her in her like holding tub like I would if she was being cleaned. I put the male in. I let the male smell around. I let the male cruise around. I keep the door open. And then I put the female back in the enclosure. That way there is zero, zero like mistake of like, oh, feeding time, right? I make sure that I'm doing something with them that is like completely out of left field compared to like my, my, my feeding, uh, you know, not to say something still couldn't go awry, but yeah, you're doing as much as you can to make sure that you're, you're interrupting any kind of food responses that could potentially happen. No, 100%. And at the end of the day, food, if a female's food not responses, ready... responses, any battle behavior, anything like that. I mean, yeah. when you're breeding these things, you, you have to be vigilant in making sure that you know what's going on at all times, especially during those first few pairings. Yeah, and that actually, that's a great point into kind of caveating into like the idea is if breeding is right for you. I, I, it, it's If you've bred ball pythons before, if you bred blood pythons before, Breeding retics is not the same because male retics are extremely combative during breeding season. And it, that's not very, that's not typical of other, um, there are other species of snakes that you breed that are like that. But understanding that breeding season for retics is, it's sketchy. Um, I have males that I trust with my entire life I, I would let a six-year-old hold that animal but the moment that a female is cycling in my room that male can is a completely different i'm talking about my 50 percent superdorf amel gosh he is such a sweetheart man but anytime that a female cycles i can tell he's like my first notice of when a female is is getting into the cycle motion because I'll open his tub and I'll touch him with his hook in which he doesn't even mind. And the moment I touch him with a hook, he just like, is just like, like throwing his coils at me and telling me like, you know, back up and, um, and, and, you know, males can be very dangerous during breeding season. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I had a difficult male to deal with just off the get-go breeding season or not uh my first run around so that on top of breeder hormones i mean it was like a rodeo some days it just you never you never know what you're gonna get when it comes breeding time with those guys yeah and i mean it could be hit or miss i mean uh you yeah. know some males don't even react and some males you know are very very you know my wild cop male kalatoa that i had um that i ended up selling um he was so combative with me that the way that I had to introduce him was I had to open the female's enclosure. And this was partially why I introduced when she was fully off of food. So I didn't have to worry about her lunging at me. I had to open up her enclosure, open up his enclosure, use my hook to guide him into the female's enclosure. I always made sure that his enclosure was on top of hers. 
Yeah, so we that, did I, almost the same thing. Uh, they were just side by side. He was in a little rack. She was on the bottom enclosure. And, you know, uh, most of the time through just hook handling is how we had to deal with him because he just, he was a hands-off animal. Yeah. Um, I mean, not completely hands-off. I make this guy sound like Satan, but you have. he's he's handleable. <laughs> you just have to be on your toes. You just have to give him the respect he deserves. He had a, a rough start. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, we would lead him in with hooks and, you know, I'd say a good 60, 70% of the time, it's like, oh, going to see, see my lady. And, you know, coming out, he was, I mean, he was a great breeder. So, I mean, we were talking at multiple locks every session. Did you he get any so of bur- those locks where he, like, raised her tail up? Uh, I would have to look through my pictures. I don't think so, but, I mean, definite confirmed locks. He was a show-off. Um, <laughs> but he, he, so much so to the point where it was, like, he was so exhausted after most of those meetings where I could pretty easily even though i was going through uh just pre-back surgery and you know on iv antibiotics on tubes everywhere i still could handle him okay that's terrible what an experience you had it yeah it was weird but i mean i i managed i managed um so so yeah like if you are gonna consider breeding retics just know that you know if you have cycling females around your males might act way out of the norm when versus you didn't have female cycling and and um it, it goes back to what we said before is don't get complacent with the animals stay on your toes stay alert stay aware and be ready for the unexpected um and um yeah i mean so that that covers a good basis of at least breeding behavior with with um I I I'm not going to speak much about like the the bad sides of it when things go bad with with biting and those kind of things because yeah. it hasn't happened to me and Same. I don't feel like it's it's appropriate for us to comment on that but just know that 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 is also a possibility of uh, I I'll touch on one little bit like I like Lucas said we aren't going to touch on names just I mean we haven't we didn't know what we were talking about going into this episode besides just our personal experiences. That's what this is all about. Um, so I'm not going to name any names. I didn't talk with anyone beforehand. Um, but one of my mentors, he, he works with some larger animals and had, had one of his males out, uh, cruising and just, you know, doing some maintenance with him, doing some interaction time. And, probably were some cycling females in the house he was throwing some arches against the walls and you know just put his hand in the wrong place and ended up getting some pretty decent lacerations uh to the point where these wounds had to be butterfly bandaged up probably stitches would have been better but uh you know some of us guys were we'd rather do it ourselves and not have to go through going to the doctor I get that, but you know, you're talking about some serious damage that can happen, especially when you start dealing with some of the larger localities and you know, you just want to, you want to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. You don't need a negative experience for you or, or your animals. Nope. So be careful. Um, incubator setups. What do you use? So, uh, like it or not, I uh, copycat uh, Garrett Hartle. 
and I use the Igloo incubator setup. It's worked well for a lot of people, man. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like, especially in Utah, where uh, humidity is so big with incubating these eggs, uh, it's just the easiest way for me to maintain humidity. I haven't played around with any incu other incubator styles. I'd love to get a uh, Sea Serpent's Hotbox incubator at some point and play around with one of those. Uh, but, you know, if, it, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And... I think the only the only thing that would ever push me towards one of those hotbox style incubators is just space. I'm working with a 10 by 12 room. I'm crammed in here. That igloo cooler takes up a lot of space, although it can hold. I mean, I don't know how many boxes Garrett can fit in there, but I'm imagining I, I can fit four. in at least four clutches of like he, he, four boxes. I, yeah, four boxes. So it's it's okay. one two he might be if, able to fit six no no i if i'm if i'm thinking about my space correctly just how i've set up boxes in there i think i could set up six to eight boxes oh wow uh, what, my what last size, clutch what of, size what size tubs Ooh, that's a great question six quart? um i'll I'll post the link in our comments to uh, the incubator build that Garrett did. He has a lot of great information on why this incubator setup is what he he had preferred in the past, and I believe he still use it, uses it even though he tinkers around with some other stuff. Uh, you know, it, it, it works well, so uh, I'll put that in the comments below. You guys can dive into that if you want to build your own igloo style incubator what it's i do super just easy. very very basic is it's a reservoir of water at the bottom two uh two uh submersible heating elements just like you would get for an aquarium i'm gonna i'm gonna ask that you put the links to the heating elements used because i had an issue yeah, okay. using i had an this issue is, using yeah this is a setup. point of contention for me as well so Garrett's video. So this is like a disclaimer before you go and watch Garrett's video. I love, <laughs> love Garrett to pieces. He is the greatest. But in the video, they show him going to PetSmart, Petsco, Petco, whatever, and picking out these heaters and uh, fans. And it's all, I believe, Aquion, and it's all 50-watt yep. stuff, really low wattage. It could not get my incubator to 88 to save my life. So, and it wasn't consistent for me. I, I mean, consistency wasn't ever an issue when it wasn't reaching temperatures for me. Well, clear. And yeah, so <laughs> quickly I jumped on Amazon. Just you know, found the best reviewed. I believe it's a 150 or a 100 watt submersible heater and i run two of those uh in the video he explains just have two of them just as a backup if one goes out you have you have the other one that can run yeah um, so what, so what you want to do is you want to set one to the ideal temperature that you want your boxes at and then you want to set the other one to two degrees two degrees lower so that, oh, that okay it's a, so he says that in the video so I, I didn't catch that yeah so what what the ideal is is that like if one malfunctions, it's only going to drop a degree or two before the other one kicks on. You don't want the other one to be the same temp because if that one with the same temp drops and the other one reads it, you might have a spike up in temperature 
So you want to have like a degree or two of a difference between the two for the other one to kick on. There's a possibility I did and just didn't know it. I believe they were pretty closely set. And I luckily, I mean, it could be my probes in my, uh, and my uh, thermostat that really did the trick in regulating temperatures. I don't know. I run a herb set. But yeah, basically the reservoir of water, those two heating elements, uh, a submersible fan just to push the water around so that you're not getting hot spots in your water. The water's always flowing around and it's maintaining a constant temperature. Um, and then ventilation. Ventilation's huge. Uh, I drilled probably... 30 holes in this uh <laughs> in this igloo they're all around the sides around the top make sure you have uh i drill uh routed out some spaces for all the wires to go through so i'm not running into anything pinching in between the the cooler setup so there's no shorts in my wires uh that's really big i feel like that's something that's not touched on in the video it's pretty basic knowledge so i mean you know figure it out uh, and then, yeah, make sure you have a, a big enough hole in your tubs to also, uh, run a, a probe right into your tub. So you're measuring the air temperature in the egg, egg tubs instead of just in the incubator. What substrate medium did you use? <clears throat> so I just used perlite, just straight perlite. I sifted it, got all the, the dust out of there. Just kind of, uh, I believe the person I first saw that was either Barcheck or uh, or Hartle. I can't remember. I think it was Barcheck though when he was setting up his eggs years okay. ago. Yeah, my first year breeding, I, I sifted it out. The second year, when I had a successful clutch, I didn't, and it seemed to be fine. But yeah, I used perlite too. Um, I know Eric Lee uses um, vermiculite, and I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious on on. I just I don't know. I mean, perlite worked for me. Season, I mean, so. like I said with the incubator, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah. I've seen a ton of people incubate on vermiculite. The only downside I've ever heard with vermiculite is that it can uh, harbor uh, bacteria and produce mold sometimes. So, yeah, I mean, you're working in a, a dark, hot, damp environment. So it's it's a great place for mold to start, and especially if you get a bad egg. But I mean, you're I'm a dark, sure hot I'm, environment. I, I haven't played around with it. Maybe I should incubate on vermiculite this year and see. I, I I don't think I'm going to go to it just because I think perlite does the same job, and that's what I've used. And um, <coughs> excuse me. Well, and I've seen people that do tough. mixes too. I mean, <laughs> I think I think partially why people choose one or the other other is also how it retains moisture or sometimes how they do a mix uh with with my incubator setup it's running at near 100 percent humidity all the time so i don't really need to worry about it besides just you know wiping off the condensation on top of my lids making sure that the eggs aren't getting physically wet yeah um, yeah, so I used the igloo my first year and, um, I had issues and fluctuations of temps and I don't know what was causing it. And to be uh, honest, you, I mean, that, that storm didn't help you. 
No, not not at all. And our crazy winner didn't help me. And then my second year, when I had a successful clutch, um, I had my incubator running solid, the igloo incubator running solid for like a month. And then I put the eggs in there when I finally had eggs. And then my eggs, my, my temperatures throughout the day were fluctuating a degree and a half. And I didn't like it. So what I did was I found an old school... Um, open transparent glass uh refrigerator um on craigslist really cheap cheaper than it cost me to get my igloo um cooler and it was i think i I think i spent 75 bucks on it i ran heat tape through the back that cost me 15 bucks um i spent another 15 bucks on fans um to circulate the air just like you would uh, with the the water uh, pumps um, in that, and uh, that worked beautifully. Um, yeah, heat, heat rises. I mean, so you need to you need to be cycling stuff through, so you're not having any heat spikes. The worst thing that can happen to our reptiles, whether they're incubating or alive, is heat spikes. Yeah, hundred percent. And so I used that, and I I built that within like two days, and um, I was really happy with how solid it kept the temps. So I told myself I would, I, I'd stick to that using that incubator. And then, um, because I had good luck with my clutch and I was able to sell, I decided to invest in, <laughs> decided to invest, <laughs> sorry, decided to inve- invest in a, um, uh, sinful serpents are based out of texas but they build the same thing at the same style with a false wall incubator sea serpents hot box uh and so i i purchased one of those just got it i'm about to set it up and get that bad boy cranking and uh super excited to see how that does so now i that that one alone i got was like four feet tall fits my 28 quart uh iris tubs and uh i can fit 120 uh, to 150 eggs in that single incubator. And then I have my self-made one from last year as a backup. I don't think I'm ever going to be producing that many eggs for, for at least, uh, three years or so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I I planned ahead with this giant igloo incubator. I knew I was only going to produce maybe one or two clutches at the most with it within the first five years or so. so. Yeah. I have I have expected three to four maybe this year, and so I figured I was like, you know, I, I sold a successful clutch of Kalatoas, might as well just get something that is um, successful and and that that's manufactured. And I'll see how it works, but I have mine that I made I made last year out of a a just old school uh, gas station type of fridge. Um, if any of you are curious on what the Red build Bull? looks like. Uh, no, not Red Bull, but yeah, I see Everyone those. Does are the cool. Red Bull. <laughs> mine, mine has like a cool old '80s retro, like uh, pastel yellow, bluish red. Like, remind me how big it is. Sorry. Uh, shoot, it's about like five feet tall. It's a good size. I can, I could fit probably, if I needed to, with the X space, could probably fit 150, 200 eggs in there. Okay. Yeah, that's giant. Yeah, and and the, the what's great with the fans and the way that I set it up, one fan on top, one fan on the bottom, circulating air up and down, uh, the temperature only fluctuated one degree from the top to the bottom. 
That's great. And are you, you what are you using to uh, monitor temperatures? Sensor push. Always. Okay. Yeah. Everyone's so using the sensor pushes. I, I, I mean, I just did the probe just because I was going budget friendly. I wasn't working at the time. So hundred you know, percent. Every, every penny counted. hundred um, percent. Yeah, I would I think sensor push is the way to go. Yeah. I recommend for anybody to get the sensor push system. So what that, what that requires is you getting a gateway, which connects to your Wi-Fi. And then you get each individual sensor to connect to that gateway. Now you don't have to get the gateway in order to access temperatures via Bluetooth. But if you're not within range, you won't be able to. I was able to monitor ranges and that's how I actually monitor my snake room right now. So I'll get notifications. I can set notifications on when it gets above a temperature, below a temperature, humidity. Um, and yeah, sensor like push. Thermostat. Yeah, sensor push is so accurate that I went off of the sensor push temperature and not my thermostat probe because there's more okay. likelihood of that probe from malfunctioning versus that sensor. Um, and so like if I set my probe to 88, but my sensor was at 87, my, my incubator was at 87. I did not use the 88 from the, the, the probe. Um, okay. so, um, incubation temps, I mean, this can be pretty straightforward. doesn't have to be very long. I like to use a nice happy medium, 87 and a half to 88. Yeah, I think, uh, let me uh, jump into my notes here. But I, uh, yeah, I I went 74 days on 88 and a half degrees. I think if I were to change it, I would probably just drop it down half a degree. Maybe try to slow down the incubation process just a tiny, tiny bit. But, no, I think uh, 88, yeah. 88 and a half is kind of the sweet spot. And what's crazy is that you said you did 88 and a half at 74 days. Mm-hmm. My pure Kalatoa clutch hatched that day 83 at, at 88. So it just goes to show that like it's there's no cookie cutter way. I mean it, it's just every clutch is going to be different. But but yeah, if you're incubating in the temps of like 88, expect your clutch to hatch in between 76 to 82 days or so. Yep, a little bit longer than uh, some of the other python python species. So yeah, exactly. You got to be patient, but it's not still not the monitor game where you're waiting all year for your eggs. Yeah, and then at that point, um, so. Man, so let, let's get to kind of the topic of this and like, is breeding right for you? So like we've talked about age, sex, size, how to set up your incubator, all this, this good informative information, but now you've, you've hatched babies and now you have to sell them and you have to care for all these babies, feed them, clean them. What was that response? I mean... I know that you 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 ended up um, you you were able to sell your animals through Garrett. What would you think it would be like to have forty hatchlings and have to clean feed all of those hatchlings until you're able to feed them? I mean, I'd love every second of it because that I mean, I feel like just interacting with the hatchlings is what it's just great. it stokes the fire, right? But it's a ton of work, you know. I, I was cleaning the 19 hatchlings before I sent them over to Garrett for uh, oh, a couple of weeks, maybe a little less than that before their first meal for sure. And uh, 
You know, these things, even though they're they're just hatchlings, they're peeing all the time. <laughs> May not be big, but I mean, you're, you're you don't constantly want them sitting on dirty and... paper, though. Yeah, um, and I think with the hatchlings, I I am going to rethink uh, substrate. I don't think it's totally necessary to mm. be going through a whole sheet of paper every single time I need to clean one of those things, especially when the poops this Tiny. big and my whole sheet of paper is, you know, so. I think with the babies, it might be a little easier to just go substrate route with them. Or, you know, I've seen uh, for especially, you know, day old, couple day old until they get rid of that egg skin, just setting up on water. Uh, yeah. You know, I think keep it super minimalistic for the first few days. Then when you're setting them up on substrate, probably go something you can spot clean at first. Then when they start getting more established, I like to switch to paper just like I said in previous episodes i just like to keep everything a little bit sterile yeah. and i i i felt the same way and i rent i went that route and i got baby chip so baby chip is a product of repti chip which is mm-hmm. just smaller pieces of cocoa um and boy like i might my very first experience breeding retake went poorly and then when it went successfully i had the babies and then my out of all animals, I'm so fortunate that it happened to my holdback. But I my 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 female holdback got impacted by a piece of baby chip. Okay. And it got lodged in there and I saw it. It was actually the day that like two people came over to my house in Texas that bought their babies and I showed them my holdback and I was like, oh shit. And I, I saw this piece ledged in them and it took two weeks of everyday soaking, non-feeding. And thank goodness she, I'm 90% sure she regurgitated it. It didn't look like it came out from the back end. And I don't think it would have passed through the back end or else she would have probably died. So since that happened, I'm staying on paper towel. Um for for my babies until they're they're at a probably until they're probably a year old to be honest okay that's fair um it was scary only thing i think the only thing i've seen with paper towel that can get a little bit scary is i've uh seen snakes try to eat the paper towel that's why i mean i'm using the paper in my tubs is all cnc cut uh it's all by yeah that's good too yeah cmc reptiles i'll link them in the comments. Uh, I, I use them too. I just started using them about a few months ago. It's phenomenal. Yeah, shout out uh, Ely Guy Serpents. Uh, he's the one that set me up with them originally. And yeah, they're great. It's just it, I, when you're doing 19 animals, I I can get all the paper ready, throw it Place in it within right a in. couple seconds. I mean, you're doing a quick wipe down. You're not having to soak down the entire tub in F10 when you're in those baby tubs so it's pretty quick and easy you get a little handling experience get some socialization while you're doing the cleaning it's great but i mean uh, those 19 babies they would take me 30 minutes 45 minutes yeah, depending man, 40, on what i had yeah. to go through it 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 took me for my 16 about 45 minutes to fresh water fresh paper um yeah. and um so yeah if you guys are considering getting into breeding I, I highly recommend just um, 
understanding that it is extremely time consuming. Um, you, you think about having to care for the adult and care for the animals. Excuse me. Got a cough. Going to mute. <laughs> yeah. You think about the, um, cleaning adults, having to clean all your animals. And then now you have 20 babies that you have to care for. And that's only one clutch, mm-hmm. right? And and we're talking about being a quote unquote breeder. What does that mean? That means having two clutches, three clutches, four clutches, five clutches, whatever, whatever your aspirations lead to, but just understand that it, it doesn't take a long time for, the babies to pile up and for you to realize that like, man, I am spending a lot of time on hatchlings alone. And a lot of money too. I mean, when you have two clutches of 19, 20 animals, you know, whatever you're, you're going through rodents like crazy. You're feeding these things every five to seven days, whatever your feeding regimen is. And, you know, that's, that's big orders of rodents. You're, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of dollars of an investment that you have to make up front before these babies are even there. Yeah. Ready and, to, to, ready to even sell. And then not only that, but how many times do you have a baby not want a meal and then you have to throw out a rodent <laughs> and you have to throw uh, so, it out. So per Garrett's request, uh, since I did my first clutch through uh, sold through him uh, he he requested that all the babies came before their first meal so I didn't get to deal with no, any of 100%. that um, I, I know there were a couple babies that were a, a little bit of a hard start but nothing that nothing that didn't yeah. take too long I, I actually recommend like I actually believe the same thing if you're going to wholesale a clutch to someone and you're going to send them over to someone do it before their first meal so that way they only have that one stressful experience Yep. Before they even have that shed or even just briefly after so that that new person can get them established. But yeah, for it's me, the stress I, of it all. Yeah. For Especially me, I had about, yeah, yeah. I, I had 16 hatchlings out of those 16. I had three or four that were um, not even problematic, but I, I probably tossed about 20 total rats and and mm-hmm. especially in right now's economy, you know, 20 mice um you know every penny matters when you are trying to operate and be a profitable business and care for these animals to the best that you can um so getting them to eat number one can be super frustrating and then let's also talking about like retail and sales um I, i know that you handed that off to garrett but if you don't mind i want to speak to my experience of that yeah, I would, I would love to hear it. Um, because I was super fortunate that I I don't know what the hell I did um, to be able to get my... I was able to sell my snakes within um, six weeks. Stop. Um, Stop. Which is... You're, you're, you're not giving yourself enough credit here. You, you may not... You may be surprised by the situation, but you know exactly what you did to get these animals sold, and that's just treating people right. 
goes a long way in our industry and it shows what type of person what type of breeder you are and the people that you see that are having animals that are sticking around for a long time are the people that ultimately aren't treating others right in this community yeah appreciate that yeah so i i was able to sell my snakes within six weeks and um i i worked really hard to be able to um put my animals, their entire progression online and connect with people. And anytime someone messaged me, um, I, I was able to really, um, give them my undivided attention, answer every question that they have, give them background on all my animals. Um, and was, was attentive to the questions that they had. And not only that, I had to also vet the people that were buying my animals and make sure that they were capable of keeping a reticulated python. And all that is a lot of work. It, it can be time consuming to the point where like my wife would, would get frustrated at me because I was on my phone so much. And I know a lot of you breeders out there that have been doing this for a while can probably relate that like you give so much to the people inquiring. And then a lot of these people don't even give you the benefit of the doubt of being able to respond after you tell them a price or, mm -hmm. or you even ask a question like, do you have a thermostat? Do you have an enclosure set up? Like, um, because here's one thing that I think about retail that I think is important with reticulated pythons. doesn't matter if it's a mainland, doesn't matter if it's a super dwarf, doesn't matter whatever it is. You have a responsibility to make sure that your snake is not going to be a part of a rehoming, adoption, neglected animal. Because retics are not ball pythons or other animals that just sit there where you can pick up and clean. They're complex. So when it comes to the retail side, it can get a little annoying um, because you will have people reach out to you and you give everything to them and they don't respond. But one thing that's a pet peeve for me is I constantly see people in our industry post on retic forums and groups on Facebook about like they can't stand that people reach out and do those kind of things. And like they, they call them uh, tire kickers, right? And of I'm course- guilty of it. Yeah, me too, I'm 100%. Not, I'm, a lot of the time I'm not in the position of, of investing in another animal, but if there's something that blows me away, uh, there's a good chance I'm gonna reach out to you and I'm gonna just inquire about the animal, see, see what you're asking for the animal, and it's not to fish for anything. It's just because I'm curious. Okay, if I want to get into this project because I am so blown away by what others are producing, I, I need to know how much I need to save up to stop kicking these tires. No. You know? So it's, it's, and, but as a buyer, you also need to be transparent in, in your, uh, in your dealings. I mean, Every time that I, I go about asking about an animal that I know I can't afford, it's it's always, all right, well, I appreciate the information. You know, I, I don't have the money available right now, but, you know, I, I think this animal's great. I wish you luck on the sale. It's always, my intentions are always clear so they can go on to the next person and, and try yeah. to make their sale. 
And I think as a buyer, that's important to do. But here's what I cannot stand is that breeders have this idea that all of potential buyers need to be serious when they inquire. Because I I see oftentimes like just breeders expressing frustration of tire kickers, quote unquote. You got to understand if you're getting into breeding retics, you are a part of retail. Retail is like owning a clothing store. How many people walk into Macy's and leave without buying a single thing? All the damn time. How many people walk into Foot Locker, look at shoes, try them on, and leave without buying a shoe? All the damn time. So I'm, I, I get frustrated when breeders post these these posts about like, I'm sick and tired of people messaging and then not following through and not doing this. And listen, you are part of retail. You are selling a, a product and a goods. It comes with the baggage. And if you are not willing to accept that, breeding and selling and doing retail might not be right for you. You have to be willing to accept <coughs> that people are going to knock on your door and ding dong ditch. Period. Yeah. That that that's going to happen. And and your 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 duty as someone in retail, if you want to be successful, is providing great customer service. I mean, that's standard. That's period. Middle of the road. If you want to sell anything, have great customer service. Hundred percent. If you want to be one of these big guys, the legends in the industry or the people that you see selling snakes like hotcakes now, you need to provide exceptional customer service. And that that's providing services above and beyond what your customer expects. I mean, you look yeah. at some of the branding that some of these companies are doing now and the level of experience that you get just when you get an animal by them. That kind of exceptional experience solidifies not only you in that customer's mind, but that animal, since you're going to be working with a living creature, it provides a little bit more value within that animal itself so we avoid some of these rehoming circumstances. A hundred percent. And here's what I want to say to those breeders um, that, that get frustrated with the tire kickers when when you have a tire kicker that that i don't know kicks your tire and lets you down and then you go ahead and publicly post about your frustration you're sending a message to people that unless someone is dead serious it has cash ready to never message you. And here's the thing, the way that I approached it with my animals, because it, what what's crazy, I had a list of, I only had 16 animals from my Calatoa clutch. I had a list of 65 people that reached me and told me, I want to be on your list. Which by the way, which is why I'll never do list again. <laughs> um, and so um, I reached out to every single one of them. When they hatched, after they took their few meals, and then follow-ups. I did that because I wanted to make my presence there to let them know, hey, 
you put yourself on a list, I want to let you know you have priority out of people that are not on the list. And when, when, when doing that, um, the people that decided like, you know what, something came up, I can't buy it. I said, man, you know what? I'm, I'm so sorry. No problem. You know, reach out to me if you have any questions. That sends a completely different message. And I guarantee you, for those of you that get frustrated with the tire kicker, if you approach it in the frustration manner, you're losing a lot of customers in the future. Versus just being understanding, empathetic, and just like, you know, for my mindset was like, okay, I didn't make the sale with you, but guess what? My next clutch, I might make, I might make the sale with you. Yeah. One thing I've, I've learned in business through some of my other mentors in other industries is you gotta, you gotta protect your golden goose and in retail it's, it's your customer. Yeah. So once 100%. you close those lines of communication, you're killing that golden goose and yeah, you know, that's yeah. So when, when you're breeding retakes and you're going to get involved in sales, Number one, I guess my biggest advice is like hype up the breedings and the pairings that you're doing. Post them on social media. Let them know the information. Let them know what's happening because what happens if you don't do that and then all of a sudden you decide to drop hatchlings without giving anybody any preparation or information, their first question is where did this come from, who are you, and what's going on? And this is for new breeders, obviously. If you're if you're a well-known breeder, it doesn't matter. You're going to produce what you produce and people are going to be like, wow. But for those of you that are just getting into it, build hype. Give them the backstory of your animals. Let them know where they come from and and let like share the inside scoop. Let people know that like people want to know everything about the animal that they're buying in today's day and age. It wasn't like that with retics five years ago. Um. But today, it, it, I mean, the world, the, the, the day and retics are, are changing where they want to know lineage. They want to know information. They want to see pictures of parents, grandparents, and as far back as they can. So um, do that. And then also just if you're going to get into breeding, just know you're going to be on your phone a lot. You're going to be talking to a lot of people. You're going to get a lot of denials, a lot of people that are asking questions and don't buy. And that's something to consider. What's your daytime job look like? How much free time do you have? Um, there, There is someone out there right now, I won't mention his name, an amazing human being that has amazing quality animals that is really struggling to sell animals right now because he is not up to date with technology um, and, and really posting and he's super busy in his personal life and he's struggling to sell animals because he's not able to do what it really takes to do the retail side of things. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And I mean, for me, part of the decision in, in going through, through Garrett for my first round was, you know, I didn't have the time to dedicate that through, my my PT, my recovery, the back surgery, you know, trying to get back to work and settle my life back down. So, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why someone, you know, would choose a, an option like that. Um, 
I don't blame anyone for, you know, if they can, taking the long route and trying to get all the, their animals sold on, on their own if they, you know, unfortunately don't have the time to dedicate all the social media that can kind of lead into those sales. Let me see. So, I mean, we talked about it's bringing right for you. We've talked about like the, the difficult retail side of things, the the unpredictability of, of being able to determine if you're going to have a successful clutch, when you're going to have a successful clutch. Um, mm-hmm. Anything else you want to add? Uh, let's think about this for a second. Um, as my computer freaks out on me, bear with me. Uh yeah, we covered pretty much everything I want to go over. Um, you know, how we kept our our hatchlings, I would love to have had a little bit more experience with that so I could dive into that a little bit deeper with you. Um, but yeah, I think we covered what we can for our level of experience getting getting into this industry. With that being said, guys, I cannot thank you enough for uh, joining us here tonight. Please like, subscribe, comment, give us feedback. Let us know how we're doing. Engage with us. Become a Patreon member. Uh, join part of our Retake Lounge community. Become a lounger. Become a couch potato. Um, you know, Sofa spud, a lazy bones, whatever we you want to be. It's up to you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We got... We got different things to offer you on our Patreon. Um, and, and I promise it's a great community positive and, and, um, if, if you're new at keeping retakes and you are wanting to breed or just wanting to get more in-depth information, join our Patreon. It, it's going to be one of the best decisions that you can make to have a community supporting you behind you, having me and Nathan to help you, um, through, through the struggles that we've gone through. Um, again, we cannot thank you enough for tuning in tonight listening to us catch us next friday on the retake lounge you guys have a good night